Greetings, Parish Orphans and Retrogrades. Happy Monday. Now, today I'm going to be discussing the sixth precept of the Roman Catholic Church. That's right. You've been taught there are only five. Well, since 1994, in this Catechism of the Catholic Church, a precept, we're going to talk about what a precept is in half a minute, a precept of the Church vanished literally between this catechism. This is a non-universal catechism, but it is a catechism of the church that's considered semi-universal in other, uh, unlike other catechisms. We have six catechisms of the church specified. A precept, as we'll find out shortly, is a preconcept that is much more like doctrine than discipline, irreformably so. It can't be changed. But by the time we get to this in 1994, I think this the last printing of this is 49 to 94, one is conspicuously shaven off. And it involves marriage, celibacy, what counts as uh, adultery. In other words, fake marriages, getting married outside the church, getting remarried, as you know from the Francis Pontificate, Parish Orphans and Retrogrades. This is a hot topic, and the conspicuous vanishing of the sixth precept of the church from here to here, well, that tells the whole tale of the tape. We're going to get into what exactly happened to the sixth precept of the church now. Marriage and family is what Our Lady at Fatima guaranteed us would be the final assault of Satan on the world, and we're undergoing it now, and it looks like we've been undergoing it since at least 1994, if not, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s. So buckle up. The show today is on that sixth precept. Also, as an ancillary matter, it's on whether or not folks who are Catholic, who are baptized Catholic, that got married, uh, that, that seek to get married outside the church, in other words, to take advantage of the vanishment of the sixth precept, whether or not they're sinning, they are, this is basically apostasy, and whether or not you are allowed to go to their church, uh, to their wedding, this requires a distinction I meant to make on the show for a long time between the different types of cooperation and scandal. This has come up a number of times over the last couple months uh, with, with family and friends of my own. So I figured I'd roll this into the second half of today's show because the whole reason you're asking about the vanishment of the sixth precept of the church, it's not, it's not inconspicuous, it's political, is because you might be getting asked by friends and family to attend their apostatizing union, which is to say they're getting married outside the church, probably to someone outside the church. Are you allowed to go? Even though... The church formally said no just by having the sixth precept of the church read what it does. I'll tell you how to analyze the moral theology and moral philosophy such as to give you a definite answer just by assessing the way that formal and material cooperation works today. So let's get into it. First, please like, subscribe, click the notification bell on this video. Leave a comment, particularly in this episode. Comment on whether or not in the past 18 months, this issue, sixth preceptual issues, 
has been relevant to you, your family, or friends? Have you been asked to attend a wedding of an apostate, a celebration of the very formal act of apostasy? We, most of us have. And if you haven't in the past 18 months, odds are you will be asked to do so in the next 18 months. So we will get to that today. And of course, leave a comment, if not now at the end of the video, whether or not this is relevant to you. But we want to get to 50,000 subscribers by summertime. That's a, an ambitious goal. And only you, Parish Orphans and Retrogrades, can help to make it happen. If you're a regular or even a semi-regular viewer of Rules for Retrogrades, please, please, please click all of those buttons like subscribe notification right now so that you can consistently watch the show, at least if you want to. If you want to support the channel, go to Timothy J. Gordon on Patreon. You can also donate privately which is a different thing, on timothyjgordon.com. But if you want to get stuff in return, like you want to be a part of the many book clubs that I do with my friends, like the Great Divorce Reading Club, which meets on Wednesday nights. Actually, it's the last meeting in two days. Great Divorce Reading Club. Then you have to be a patron. It's patrons only. It's all levels of patron. And you help out this channel and you get things like signed books and, and, and free stuff, swag as a patron anyway, but you really do support the channel thereby. Please become a patron today. And if you want to just support me and my family because of the hardships that we've undergone over the last five years, medical, professional, then you can click on the donor box button at timothyjgordon.com. Also, if you want to take a class at Retrograde Classical Academy, we're making them cheaper than ever. I think at least some of them are cheaper than ever. Some of them are going to be free in the month of February. We're offering two new classes. One will probably be free. One will be very cheap. Those classes will be on the Catechism of Trent and, of course, on how to write your own classical homeschool curriculum, which is what I've been doing today. I got up and homeschooled the kids for two hours. We're not using any curriculum but the one we make, and it's not a curriculum. It's just what we teach the classical way. Don't use a homeschool curriculum. This is a contradiction in terms. That free class should be coming to you soon. Likely free. If it's not free, it'll be super cheap. These are all the things that Rules for Retrogrades brings to you. So please support us. Support the YouTube channel. Support the online academy. Support us through Patreon at timothyjgordon.com. Now, Okay, let me read to you this article called The Disappearing Precept on Catholic Marriage. This is at liturgyguy.com. It's a cute name. Never never used this site before. I use a lot of repeat sites. And this is the first time I've ever gone to liturgyguy.com. It's called The Disappearing Precept on Catholic Marriage, if you want to go look it up. We'll try to try to link it in the notes. A subtle Yet significant change in the precepts of the Catholic Church was recently brought to my attention, he writes. More than just a change, it is actually an omission. Not like an oversight type omission, but a vanishment type omission. I'm, I'm saying that much. The removal of the sixth precept regarded the, regarding the Church's laws on marriage. The Catechism of the Catholic Church 
here explains that the precepts of the church concern the moral and Christian life united with the liturgy and nourished by it. What a precept is, is a pre-concept. It's that word mashed, pre-concept, meaning it is preconceptual, meaning it is something that even before we receive the ability to conceive of ideas, this preceptual idea pre-exists it. Pre, pre, pre. Precept, pre-exists are preconceived notions. So the other five precepts of the church, pre-concepts of the church, much more like doctrine than discipline, are things you've heard me mention topically as they're related to this episode or that episode over the last three or four years. For instance, I told my SSPX friends, and I, and I do have many friends who attend SSPX chapels, and not, not snottily, but I told them, look, I, I mainly stay out of the, the, the debate, which gets rehashed in really unintelligent ways. I, I have a clear view on you know, canonical status and all that, but I say, I don't even think I have to dabble in that. The problem, if you, this is just an example, this isn't what the shows are on, but if you go to the uh, Society of St. Pius X website, they make it clear that they don't think you have to attend Mass on Sunday if you can't get to uh, a particular liturgy, the TLM, the good one, <laughs> right? The, the TLM is, is going to be, it's going to be a much better mass. If you don't have a diocesan TLM in your diocese, the mass is going to be much better at the SSPX chapel. This is not a question. The people are going to be much better Catholics at the SSPX chapel. This is not up for debate than any of the Novus Ordos, even the quote unquote token unicorn faithful Novus Ordo in your Diocese. Get get real, okay? The people will be better Catholics, and the liturgy will be better, on the average, a hundred times out of a hundred, at the chapel, than at the Novus Ordo. Okay. If you say otherwise, you're just being dishonest. Of course, the question of the priest saying the SSPX Mass is serious, because every conciliar pope, post-conciliar pope JP two Benedict Francis, at least since 1988 has said there's a there's a schism problem but the folks i'm not talking about the the clergy at the uh society chapel i'm talking about the folks the lay people at that society mass well they're allowed to be there that permission was granted explicitly in 1988 okay but my big problem is that not 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 that lay people go to sspx chapels which has been allowed by the church my problem is that sspx on its official website says that you can disobey a precept of the church if you want to. And they don't have the plenary authority to say that. Yeah, that's, that's fine. You can make your own decision for your own family as long as the church grants the ability to go to the society chapel in town. They seem to have in 1988. Ecclesia Day wrote it in a letter. As far as I can tell, I don't go to one. But the point is, they should not be telling anyone that going to a Novus Ordo doesn't count or that you can you don't have to go to mass on Sunday if you're if you got a bad Novus Ordo 90 seconds away from you a 90 second drive which I have nope this doesn't count you don't get to 
ignore the precept of the church about going to Mass on Sunday and Holy Days just because the chapel in town that says the best liturgy, the TLM, says you can. No, it's a precept. You have to go to some Catholic Mass on Sunday, and it's a pre-concept of the church. So I've, I've taken them to task for having this on their website. Well, that's, that's trads, right? To, in today's show, I would say that a precept, which is unchangeable, something that's preconceptual, something that is preceptual, that appears as late as 1949, here, we have six precepts of the church. I don't know what authority there is for a church. You can rewrite a catechism and leave out whatever you want. This is just a teaching document. This ain't doctrine. But what's highly suspicious is this, I'll continue with the article. What's highly suspicious is that this catechism of the church literally says that in, in CCC 2042, I'll open to it, it literally says that there are only five precepts of the church. It's not really a lie by commission, it's a lie by omission, isn't it? If I'm like, hey, there are three marks of the church, that's a lie by omission. What the hell? There are four marks of the church. One, holy, Catholic, apostolic. There are six precepts of the church. I'm about to read them to you. They're not as catchy as one holy, Catholic, apostolic. But if someone tells you there are three marks of the church, I, I, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. You know they're lying by omission. This is what's going on. The guy that wrote this liturgy guy article has an issue with the lie by omission that's that's happening here. And he I don't think he's some politically charged hard right winger in the church. I think he's literally like, what's up with this? I just want to look at it for myself. 2042, as I read his article, I like to check first sources. Yeah, so I have it right here. Here's what he says. Check out what liturgy guy says. I'll repeat, the Catechism of the Catholic Church explains that the precepts of the church concern the moral and Christian life united with the liturgy and nourished by it. Okay, so it's it's preceptual ways of living out the faith. And I'm going to prove to you that precepts, just by proof by example, when we go through the five that this most recent catechism chooses to acknowledge, that they are all preconceptual, they're basically like pre-dogmas, they're not like disciplines which can be changed. Dis the Pope can change disciplines, okay? I don't like it. You don't like it. But the Pope can change disciplines. Pope can change the liturgy of the hours, the breviary, the mass, the calendar. I hate it, but he can. Those are disciplinary elements. Unless you're talking about one of the formal aspects that never has or never will be changed. The 94 Catechism promulgated during the papacy of JP2 List only five of six. I'm reading from Liturgy Guy. Number one, you shall attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligations and rest from servile labor. Okay. This comes from one of the Ten Commandments, which is divine law. More preceptual than even the natural law is the divine law. It goes divine, divine and eternal law, natural law, positive law. Preceptual. We, can't, we don't get to reason about or try to disprove the Ten Commandments. Keep holy the Sabbath, 
for Jews translates to attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. That's precept number one. So it's just restating the ten, the ten, one of the Ten Commandments. Number two, you shall confess your sins at least once a year. This is a precept that is already stated by the lived doctrine of the church. You must confess your sins at least as often as you have a mortal sin. No one but a saint, no one but a saint goes a year without a mortal sin. If you go a complete year without a mortal sin, you're a saint. But guess what? Even the saints need to go to confession a minimum of one time a year because you get extra cumulative graces for it. But this runs with the, the precept of the church, runs with scripture. In 1 Corinthians, when St. Paul says, he who eats or drinks the sacrament unworthily eats or drinks his own damnation on his own head. So this is scriptural. This is dogmatic. You must go to confession. The only thing that might strike one as not completely preconceptual is the church's prudential judgment, hey, go at least once per calendar year. But out of the Judaic tradition, if something's a part of your life, you do it at least once a calendar year. It's, it's, it's an article of common sense. Still preceptual. I, I would argue there's nothing that is diminished or mitigated in the preconceptual nature of going to confession just by saying, do it once per calendar year. Number three, you shall receive the sacrament of the Eucharist at least during the Easter season. Exact same goes, all right? You have to at least receive Eucharist once a year. And here they stipulate something a little more prudential. It must be during the Easter season. I thought it was during Lent. Always mix that up. Okay. So Eucharist is a dogma. It's the source and summit of the faith. You must receive it once a year. You must go to confession in order to receive it that one time a year. These are precepts. There's nothing complex here. You shall observe the days of fasting and abstinence established by the church. That's precept number four. Now, this is like a redundant precept. The church says you have to fast and abstain from meat on certain days of the year. That's nothing new. This precept is, well, the church says you have to do it, so you have to do it. So this is like, you know, the, prince, the, the mathematical principle of identity. This is A equals A. This is propositional logic. This is just saying the church says X, so you must do X. That's precept number four. You must do X with particular regard for uh, um, food, taste. Not, it used to be taste and touch. In the medieval uh, church, on black fast, you had to abstain from marital intercourse as well. Thank goodness that, that aspect of discipline got changed. But the point is, you observe the rules of fasting and abstinence whenever the church says to. Okay, Still preceptual. A equals A. Number five precept. You shall help to provide for the needs of the church. This is... Literally, of the, the, the five that they're, that JP2's 94 catechism here deigns to include, 
that they're so good to include. This is the only one that you'd be like, well, this is an article of common sense that you have to support your local church. We don't have a specific tithing amount anymore, as far as I know. So maybe this is a little bit of a stretch to be preconceptual. But it is still an article of common sense. Thomas, Desqu- Thomas Aquinas distinguishes, for example, pro- private property is not part of the natural law, but it's a logical corollary of the through natural reason of the natural law. So Pope Leo XIII bumped private property up from, from the Thomistic status into one of now three natural rights. Before... Leo XIII, the church said there's two natural lights, life and liberty. Part of liberty is conscience. And property is like a necessary connection of a natural right. Well, Leo XIII just gives the Thomistic philosophy on private property a little nudge in the 1890s. And he says now private property is officially a natural right. A corollary of, a necessary corollary of the natural law is natural law itself, natural right. So boom, just gave it the bump up. That's kind of what we have here with precept five. An article of common sense, an item of natural reason that you must support your church who has no other means of support, this is preceptual. It's not that much of a stretch. These are the five and only five that 2042 and 2043 deign to mention in the 94 Catechism. Thank you very much, John Paul II. Now, nowhere in 2042 or 2043 paragraphs do they say the sixth has been officially removed. They don't say that. They just overlook it. So it's not technically a lie by commission. It's a lie by omission. A precept is preconceptual. That It's like a doctrine or even like a dogma. The church can't take it away. The church can't give it or take it away. It just is. It's preceptual by definition. So our friend, the liturgy guy, says the following. He reads, he reads the top line from 2042. And then he says, after being made aware of the omitted precept, I, I'm going to unplug this. After being made aware of the omitted precept, I went back and consulted my copy of the Catechism Explained, written by Father Francis Spirago and published by Benzinger Brothers in 1899. Father Spirago lists a total of six precepts of the Catholic Church, with the final advising the faithful the following. Quote, not to marry persons who are not Catholics. Uh-oh. Wait a minute. This might be what Francis would call a sin against ecumenism. Not to marry persons who are not Catholics or who are related to us within a forbidden degree of kindred. Uh, so no incest perverts. Nor privately without witnesses. That means Catholic witnesses in a church nor to solemnize marriage at forbidden times. Uh Uh-oh. So now, we're not talking about fasting. We're not talking about when to attend Mass. We're not talking about when to receive the Eucharist. We're not talking about when to go to confession. We're talking about people's private parts. We're talking about people's private parts. That's what marriage is. The marital act is intercourse. 
And in the 20th century, people's private parts drove them nuts. No pun intended. In the popular culture, okay? The popular culture lost its shit because of their private parts. They went nuts. Again, pun definitely intended. And the church, not explicitly in its constitutions at Vatican II, not there, there's no error, but it all but capitulated starting a little before Vatican II. The documents are a big question mark. They're vague. You can read them in a faithful way without stretching anything. All that hermeneutic business. But right after the council, it became clear that the documents were written with a bad intent. To be able to, I don't know, shave off a precept? Look, I'm not a theologian. I tell you guys this often, and people still write me as a theologian just because I taught theology at a Catholic high school. I am a philosopher. I taught philosophy at college. Their mandate for credentials are more specific when you teach college. I, I can only teach philosophy or logic at a college. I can't teach theology at college. It's not an area of competence at college. For high school, they're like philosophy, Thomistic philosopher, close enough. When you say precept to a cat like me, go and say it to an analytic philosopher. They're going to flip. A lot of them aren't even sure there's such a thing as a precept. Something that's preconceptual. How can it be a concept before you can conceptualize? You say precept to a philosopher, and we're like, whoa, okay, this is old. You can't change it. The essential property of a precept in the noetic realm, epistemically, is that it is immutable. So you can't just shave a precept off. Now, you say this to a theology guy, they, don't, they might not understand the, the rigorous propositional requirements, syllogistic requirements of, what, okay, what is a precept? What it is it to be preconceptual? So they slipped this one in. A lot of the theology guys didn't notice it. You cannot take away a precept qua precept. If it is truly a precept, it cannot go anywhere. So this guy says, look, I checked it. And the sixth missing vanished Jeff, uh, Jeffrey Epstein precept reads, according to Father Spirago, not to marry persons who are not Catholics, nor privately to marry without witnesses. Uh-oh. This is a sin, Francis would say, against ecumenism. Not the sin of violating this precept, the precept itself. What do we do here? Well, let's check the Baltimore Catechism. I just taught a class on it last, whatever, March, October. What, what one was it? Um, I did, last year, I only did two classes. I did, uh, I did the, uh, it was the Thomas's Shorter Summa class. I think I did that in March. And then in October, I think I did the Baltimore Catechism. It might have done it in reverse order. But yeah, that, that's the order I did it in. And, and that class, I, by the way, is free on your website. That class is free. The class on this. But as you go through it, you're going to be confronted by something the way the rest of us were. You get to Baltimore Catechism 3 from 49... Addressing Catholic marriage, it lists a sixth precept, which states, you shall observe the church's laws on marriage 
which are inclusive of those rules that Father Spirago laid out. Okay, what are those rules? Not to marry persons who are not Catholics or who are related to us, no incest perverts, nor privately without witnesses, nor to solemnize marriage at forbidden times. Again, no incest, that's preceptual. Follow the rule. The rule is you have to follow all the rules we've laid out. That's not a new rule. That's preceptual. If you tell your kid the one rule you have to follow today is follow all hundred rules of the household. That's a precept. That's A equals A. So, what's the deal? He writes, It is unclear why the 94 Catechism of the Catholic Church omitted the traditional precept on marriage. Following the ecumenical council and the ecumenical focus of the Second Vatican Council, plus Pope Paul VI's 1970 motu proprio on mixed marriages. There's a motu proprio on mixed marriages in 70. It appears that the church may have simply acquiesced to the increasing indifference among many Catholics who did not see their faith as a priority when choosing a spouse. I agree, liturgy guy, whoever you are. The church acquiesced just as the church acquiesced to the culture on giving us, a, you know, pardon the expression, a fruity liturgy in the Novus Ordo. They acquiesced, they gave us uh, the clown mass. And that is horrible. And we all suffered by it. We all suffer through it if, if you can't get to a TLM. But now this is rather clearly within the purview of the church to change the liturgy. You guys might go, well, how much? I, I know, I know, I don't want it that way either. But they, it's clearly within the church's purview to change the liturgy. How much? How do you even quantify changing a liturgy? You can qualify it. Went from a good liturgy to a pretty fruity liturgy. But that the, the church doesn't set any limit on how much the church can change the liturgy, okay? But the church cannot change irreformable doctrine. And the church cannot change something that I think is even more timeless than irreformable doctrine. Or as timeless. Precepts. Precepts. You can't change a precept. So they didn't seek to change the language. They just lied about it in this catechism. And when I say they, I'm sorry, but I have this philosophy here at Rules for Retrogrades. They means he. Who is he? The Pope. Who is the Pope? JP2. He lied to you through this teaching document about it, right? I love how the J2P2s and the papal positivists and the papalatrists and the Pope planners will say, hey, look, we're not conciliarists. We don't believe that a council can sidestep the teachings of a Pope. The Pope's the guy in charge. I'd say that's right. But when there's a screw up, first rule of management, everything is the manager's fault. There's a screw-up here, and I don't think it was an oversight-type screw-up. Not an oopsie. It's that JP2, as he demonstrated at Assisi, was big on, he was all in on ecumenism. He wanted people, to, I guess, to be able to marry interfaith. I don't understand why. Do you? What good can come from interfaith marriages? None. Catholics, marry only Catholics. That doesn't mean you have to date only Catholics. Oftentimes, particularly here in the South, the easiest way to find a, a good young woman, I tell young men, is go date a Protestant girl converter. I, I know several people I'm very close with that did this. 
Protestants tend to be better enculturated in a in a way. They're not necessarily weird or bitter or angry. A lot of Catholics are just bitter, angry, weird. It's hard to find a normal trad. Just date a Protestant, convert her to the faith, and the main way you're going to do that is by taking her to Latin Mass and showing her how impoverished Protestantism is. Yeah, because a lot of the Catholic women, they, they're, they're suffering with this mutual submission uh, nonsense. And a lot of the, um, the hardcore Protestants, they actually take Scripture seriously. I, I tell yeah, this is a total aside, but yes, you're if you if we're like, what's that website that will tell you what the odds are of every single NFL game pass being completed as it's like in the air? Your odds of finding a high quality young Christian woman, if you're a twenty year old man, especially in the American South, are much higher converting a Protestant than a Catholic girl. So I, I that doesn't mean I'm I'm repudiating like JP two, the sixth precept of the church not by a long shot before you can get married you got to see proof of purchase she's got to convert she will protestants are good at navigating the culture they don't act like puritan weirdos a lot of times especially here in the south you know they're normal they do normal things they watch they have fun but they're like oh i can't do this because you know my daddy raised me to love jesus i'm i came to mississippi for this right it's the most conservative state for a reason, because they love Jesus here. That's not, so wrong. Not, not, not to get a new wife. I, I came to Mississippi one. for that. I came for the, yeah. High school kids, college kids, meet, meet girls in Mississippi. This is what I came for. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's I came for, so my son can meet someone good. And Catholics are rotten with feminism. I'm talking... Take your pick of faithful Catholic universities. FUS has all kinds of feminist speakers. What's-her-face spoke there? Your best friend, Steph. (laughs) Catholicism is rotten with feminism. Non-liberal Protestant sects are not. You have a better chance of getting a wife who's a Protestant. But the point is, you got to convert her first because there's a sixth precept of the church, even if JP2 lies by omission about it, which he does. Considering the confusion among faithful regarding marriage in recent decades, it would seem that now is the time to highlight rather than delete, liturgy guy says, this precept from the catechetical life of the church. Listening to a Catholic radio show recently, I heard the tragic stories of one caller after another expressing how their own mixed marriages, or those of their parents, had resulted in entire families falling away from the church. Of course. Mixed. I'm not talking about race now that's another issue it's a it's an issue where there's i think an interesting discussion on both sides and it, it's it's a much more open matter and I, no i'm not i'm not one of these boomers that says you can't even have the discussion of course come on come on no like is attracted to like but there's a case there's a strong case for mixed marriage ethnicity right um It's not the slam dunk case that I'm making for do not mix religious marriage. This is what he's saying here. And Pope Pius XII said this too. Religion is the essence of our humanity. If someone has the fake religion, sorry. Sorry, they're going to have to work it out before you can marry them or you can't marry them at all. So many 
mixed marriages had resulted in entire families falling away from the church, which makes sense. This disparity of cult, marrying a non-Catholic, is always discouraged by the preconciliar church, as demonstrated by the sixth precept. Duh. Duh. It should be obvious to us that all mixed marriages have presented a serious obstacle to raising children in the faith over the last four decades. Acknowledging these challenges, the USCCB's own website, For Your Marriage, Don't Listen to a Thing They Say, explains the troubling shift in language for the church with the 1983 revision to the Code of Canon Law. Okay, I don't really want to talk canon law. Um, okay, so I, I, he, this guy basically comes to the conclusion that I have come to. I think Taylor Marshall did a show on this in like, or, or didn't do a show, did an article on this. This was one of the other articles I found in like 2011, shortly after his conversion to the faith, before he'd gone uh, further to the right, before he's more traditional. I think, I, I don't know if he's going to TLM then at that point, but he raised a similar point and he said, I mean, I think he's specifically repudiating traditional Catholics, uh, radical traditional Catholics, and, but, but he doesn't produce a solution. He just says, this is highly confusing, which it is. And he stops there. I'm going to do a little more than stop there, okay? This is evil. Six precepts, five precepts. Forget all of the Vatican II debate. Forget all the constitutional hermeneutics from the four constitutions of Vatican II. Forget religious liberty. Dignitatis Humanae, Gaudium et Space, forget all that stuff. Forget hermeneutic of continuity, hermeneutic of rupture, all that stuff. Look at some of the fresh, with fresh eyes, look at some of the seemingly unrelated indicia. 1949, there are six precepts of the church. 1994, there are quote unquote five. And what's the issue where they gave way? Where the loins are involved, where people's private parts are involved, where marriage is involved. This is the final attack of Satan on the church. I can't tell you there's a good reason for this omission. That's not the, the purpose of this show. What I can tell you is that ecumenism is the new rule of the church. That, that the post-conciliar popes honor above all else. And ecumenism is in tension, not necessarily contradiction, but strong tension with the teachings of the pre-conciliar church. And this is the perfect example. Don't marry a non-Catholic and you must get married in the church. There's a, um, there's a kind of negotiation a midway a via media between these two that I think aided us when we got married. You were, you were about to come into the church when we got married, but you did it right afterwards. And so what did I have to get? Well, I got married in the church still, so I didn't need a dispensation from the bishop. But you're allowed to get a dispensation from the bishop in certain circumstances. I don't want to go through what the specifics are. If you contact your pastor and you say, look, I'm, I'm marrying a non-Catholic in my case, it was she's gonna she's coming into the church right after we get married. We just wanted to get married. We didn't want to wait longer, and she did do it in the first year of marriage. Uh, 
I, I forget. Did you need a dispensation? I, I can't remember. But I needed specific permission. You needed you needed yeah. specific permission, and then um, the priest sat me down, and which was actually great because this wasn't even a um, traditional priest, but he sat me down and he basically gave me the rules and said, you know, you you should enter the church. That the children will be should be raised Catholic. All that. Right. So that was thus a, a reasonable way of honoring the sixth precept of the church, even though at the time I'd been catechized according to the 94 Catechism and therefore believed there were only five. Okay, well, we kind of followed it accidentally. But that's the point. This is evil. Evil means lacking. Uh, privation. Except this is an intentional privation, so it's an evil evil. What are we to make of this? What are we to make of John Paul II? What are we to make of the amendment he made three years later to the 97 version of the 94 Catechism, where he actually, what was it, through political pressure, through a threat, he, he actually really made a, a formal error, an error of consequentialism, and uh, wrote some wrong stuff about the death penalty that is yet to be corrected. In fact, it was worsened by Francis through another fake amendment, error amendment? Have you ever, in college, have you ever had a professor that was reading one of your papers and he corrected corrected you and he edited an error into your paper? That's happened to me a couple times. That's what JP2 did to the death penalty in 97 and Francis did in 2017 or 18. Um, it was correct when it said the death penalty is good whatever. They edited errors in. Well, JP2 didn't edit something in to this vis-a-vis -vis the sixth precept. He, he, he redacted it. Something that's preceptual can't be changed. These are sins against ecumenism, as Francis would say. Okay, now here's how I want to spend the rest of our episode today. Um, this, the rubber hits the road in the following way. You get invited by a crappily catechized friend, brother, sister, cousin, aunt or uncle getting remarried or something to their quote-unquote wedding they're a baptized Catholic, and they want you to attend, even though it's a, an adulterous second union they're calling a marriage. They're getting married, and they're marrying a Protestant on the beach, or, or you know, a, a, some sort of environmentalist on the beach, and it's not religious at all. Or a Protestant in a Protestant building, they'd call it a church but it's not a Protestant building at their Protestant congregation or a Jew. This was a, a, an issue uh, with my own extended family, marrying, marrying someone completely outside of the faith or a Muslim. Someone, you, you can't do it according to this. But if you're going to, the via media would be at the very least get married inside the Catholic Church, get a dispensation for the non-Catholic spouse, you're at least observing the heart of the sixth 
precept. However, most people that are willing to marry a Protestant, a secularist, a Jew, a Muslim, outside of the church, don't give a damn anyway. So it's not like, oh, well, there's good news. You can go and get a, you know, you can get a dispensation. They don't give a damn. If they cared so little about the faith that they're not even marrying a Catholic to honor the sixth precept, well, they're not going to care that they could just apply to their bishop, send an email, and get a dispensation. And who knows if that's really enough to satisfy this. It's somewhere between this and the Baltimore Catechism, but who knows if it's enough to satisfy this. Well, at least it's something, right? The point lies in they're actually apostatizing. They're leaving the Catholic faith by attending uh, what I call an ape sacrament. An ape sacrament. Aristotle would call this one of the similitudes. A similitude is like if uh, a, a rash man is enraged and rushes headlong into battle due to his rage. He goes and fights 10 enemy soldiers. That is a similitude of courage because courage does not do the rash thing and courage is done intellectually and voluntarily, not based on one of the passions. So it's similitude because it looks brave. Looks a hell of a lot better than being a coward. But it's not bravery. It's a similitude for bravery. Well, getting married in a Protestant church is a similitude for matrimony. There's this whole canonical question of if you're both baptized Christians, it can actually be marriage, but it's not holy matrimony. The sacrament. And if someone apostatizes by taking an ape sacrament or a similitude sacrament, they are sinning gravely. This is grave matter. For you then, let, let's just break out what, it, what their invitation to your wedding, to, to their wedding is. If they invite you, they're inviting you to come and literally celebrate with dancing cake and presents, their sin, their apostasy. They are asking you to, with formal speeches, formal entrances and exits, and clapping, applause several times throughout the reception of a wedding, their sin, their mortal sin. Do you understand? Applause, dancing, cake, presents, speeches, Formal entrances, putting like bulls on parade, the wrong thing on display. What is this called? What is the word for this? The celebration of sin. This is the short expression. So, now we come to it. The battle of our times, like Theoden says, right? The battle of people's groins being waged out in the streets. They want you to celebrate their sins of the groin, sins of the loins. And I mean, this is all it is. When some, some tranny uh, wants to go ice skate in front of everyone and he falls all over hell, slips all over himself on the ice, you accidentally catch a glimpse of his private parts if you look close enough. He's asking you to applause and everyone 
is being actually mandated to applause for his genital mutilation. Well, just like this genital sin, there's a congenital sin where people are asking you, adulterers, fornicators, uh, apostates are asking you, come and clap for me and eat cake and give me presents to celebrate my act of apostasy with this similitude sacrament. Have I given you a clue where I come out on this? I get asked all the time by strangers, can I go to my friend's wedding? He's marrying outside of the church. And I just say, well, here's the sixth sacrament or sixth precept. And they say, well, but hey, look, I found this. It's not there anymore. I say, well, does that strike you as normal? (laughs) Um, And even if it's not there, I promised to tell them and to tell you the system, the, the moral arithmetic that the church has, this comes from St. Alphonsus Liguori. It's codified in the Thomistic manuals of the 19th, 20th century. So it is at some level magisterialized. I don't know the exact level, but it is the official, uh, it, it is magisterialized. It's the official reasoning of the church, algebraically, about whether or not the witnessing of sin, if you see someone killing a guy in the streets, right? This comes up all the time with police officers. They're always killing people in the streets. Okay, well, at what level are we capitulating? Or what level are we co-operators, joint operators? You see how this works? At what level are we culpably cooperative. And the church has very clear, it's very detailed, but it's very clear way of, you see someone killing a guy in the street. I'm going to walk you through it right now. Are you ready? What you have to check out are basically four, you got to go through four checks. Check, check way one, way two, way three, way four, to make sure that you're not culpably cooperating in a guy murdering some other guy in the street. Now that you're a witness to it, just being a witness to sin, we don't witness most other people's sin. Think about it. They do it. They throw their, they hurl their stone in the dark, not the light, like the Bible says. So in the rare instances where you see sins, you always walk through this four-step process. You got to check four avenues. Were you going to say something, Steph? Um, I, I'll, I was just going to ask if you were going to take questions. People are happy. Yes, I will take questions, questions on, on cooperation. cooperation. Let, let me just run through it. Okay. So this is any time you think you're seeing a sin. Um, go through these. So first you check, am I formally cooperating? I'll explain how you check that. Okay. This is very useful stuff that you should be taught. Like everything else that you should be taught, you're not. So I'm, I'm teaching you. Rules, it falls to rules for retrogrades. Am I formally cooperating in this guy getting beaten to death in the street? Secondly, you have to check, am I materially cooperating? And this breaks dichotomously into, you could, you could materially cooperate uh, remotely, which means that cooperating would not be culpable. Or am I materially cooperating proximately, whereby 
my cooperation would be illicit, unallowed. It would be culpable, in other words. So you check formal cooperation. You check material, uh, remote material cooperation. You check proximate material cooperation. That's the, the big one. And then there's a fourth way, which doesn't involve causation at all. I want you to see, though, that when you witness sin, you behold it. It doesn't have to be someone apostatizing at this ape, ape sacrament wedding, which is the big issue. Everyone writes me about it. When you witness it, any kind of sin, if you cooperate, you're actually, according to Thomistic action theory, you are helping to cause the sin. If you do so formally, you're actually, uh, Thomas says, a form, form, form gives essence, form a dot essay. Intent specifies form. So if we're talking about a tree, there's a form of the tree, it's the idos, and the material of the tree, it's what it's made of. If we're talking about an action, the matter of the action is the materia quam, what it's made of, it's moving parts, you know, the, the material causation and all that. But the, but the form of the action is specified by the intent of the intelligent operator, not an animal. Those acts lack a form, an animal tripping over a tree stump or something. That's an accident. An animal eating is not even a choice. There's no intent there. But a human being doing something is different. So intent by some human specifies the form. The reason I'm raising this is because with formal cooperation, the formal cooperator in, say, witnessing a murder in the streets, actually, you fully participate in that act because at the platonic level, I don't usually talk about Plato because I'm an Aristotelian, platonically, you are partaking in that specification of form by intent. So if you're there and you cheer for a guy getting killed in the street, for a murderer murdering in the street in front of you, you are guilty of murder, according to Catholic tradition. And this, this figures its way into the common law as well. So that's the first check. That's the big obvious, yes, you're guilty. You are a murderer if you witness a murder and you cheer for it because intent specifies form. When we intend or wish for the end, as we cooperate in it by sitting nearby or whatever, we're fully guilty. Material cooperation has those two possibilities. I'm going to explain them in a second. But they too, like formal cooperation, are a form of taking on the sin that we're witnessing. One in a culpable way, if it's proximate, if it's remote in an, in an inculpable way. And it's a distinction of degree, not kind. So it's a little tough to distinguish. That's why I'm kicking it back for a second. In these three ways, formal, material, remote, proximate, there's a, a causation that is being upheld by the cooperator. Causation means A actually leads to necessarily B occurring in a sequential chain. The fourth way that witnessing a sin exposes you, the witness, to participation in the sin is called scandal. It's called scandal. Um... And scandal means that anytime there is a public sin, we are scandalized by seeing it. 
So you, in the first place, if you see a murder in the street, you are scandalized by seeing it. Literally, you're experiencing it with one of your five senses. Therefore, you're scandalized. The scandal is that this sin is not being done privately. We're not talking about causation anymore. If you behold the sin, you are scandalized by it. You give further scandal if anything that you appear to do in your sensory reception through one, two, three, four, five of the senses seems to applaud it. I said seems to. Because what I mean is, with regard to the question of communion for the civilly divorced and remarried, JP2 resisted the Casper changes that, that Francis capitulated to. And he resisted it in the formal theology necessary. But he also said there's an easy out here for us conservatives to just say we can't, we can't give in to Casper's proposal to give communion to divorce and remarry. Everyone in a church community knows the scandal of this ex's divorce and his quote-unquote remarriage to Y. Everyone in this community knows of it. So it is a scandal. De facto. Okay? If we give him communion, we will be appearing to applaud it. Even if it doesn't causally lead anyone to cooperate formally or proximately materially, we are le- it's got the appearance of capitulating to scandal, which creates more scandal. So in other words... The little boy at Mass who watches his father, who watches his father watch an adulterer, a married adulterer, receive communion. If his father is just there and not tearing the place down, like Jesus with the, uh, the money changers at the temple, then the little boy will receive the definite message. It's okay for... Uh, remarried adulterers to receive communion and thereby to do their sin. I'm talking about a little boy watching his father, who's not part of it. He's watching his father watch some adulterous man up at the communion line. That is scandal begetting more scandal, and it has a half-life like that. You are sending a certain message just by the father of the little boy not ripping up the place. That's how toxic and how radioactive scandal is. And it's a sure bet that JP2 always was like, yeah, there are theological reasons why we can't give communion to divorce and remarried, even privately, right? There are sacramental theology reasons. There are ontological and moral philosophical reasons why they can't receive Eucharist even privately because they're unrepentant, because they're still doing the sin. You can't repent while you still do the sin. But skip all that. Here's the easy out. Most people are receiving Eucharist on Mass at Sunday in their church community. It is definite scandal creating more scandal. Okay? So when we, we check out this fourth path, scandal, as to whether or not you're allowed to go to your apostate friend or sister's wedding, as she apostatizes and marries outside the church, scandal is a non-causal fourth way of achieving a certain answer. No, I can't go. If I go to your wedding 
which is a pub by definition, it's a public event. This isn't a Braveheart wedding in the woods with just a priest as witness. If I go to your wedding, which is an ape similitude sacrament, anyone there, it doesn't have to be a 400 person wedding. It could be a four person wedding. Anyone there is scandalized by me, let's say you're you're the token Catholic that's known as kind of the holy roller in your family. You're the one that knows the catechism and quotes paragraphs in the Baltimore catechism and is citing Ratzinger and John Paul II and never Francis, of course. They're going to know, oh, well, well uh, Jim went. Jim went to that wedding. That wedding, I think, was an adulterous second union. But if Jim went, it must be all right. This is scandal. Even if they don't think this or propositionalize it or intone it, the message is being sent. So scandal, even if you didn't cause anything to happen, the scandal is ipso facto. So don't go. You can't go. You know I don't dispense prudential wisdom. This is basically categorical. Prudential wisdom, I'm like, look, I'm not telling you whether or not to drink Starbucks. I think it's good coffee. Actually, drinking Starbucks or watching Netflix uh, is so prudential, I'll say it is a remote material cooperation, and that's why I don't engage in telling you whether or not to, to prudentially abstain or engage in it. Netflix or Starbucks, big evil corporations. That is classic remote material cooperation. So an example, and then now, now we have to get into it. Formal cooperation is a definite X. You cannot formally cooperate in an adulterous second union or a, an apostate wedding, your, your friend marrying someone outside the church. You cannot. All I'm saying there, you can't formally cooperate, is that means you can't go and cheer for them marrying outside the church qua marrying outside the church. Um, let me just stop you right there for a second because there was a question that pertains to that. People are asking, what about if um, you're, there are two people who are getting married who are Protestants? Um, this is a this is not apostasy, so it's a totally different it's totally different moral analysis. Uh, your Protestant your Protestant friends generally, yeah, the, you will not be precluded from attending a Protestant on Protestant wedding. Protestant on Protestant action, that's different because there's no apostasy to speak of. Um, it is still a kind of a similitude sacrament, maybe in their view, but the church is clear. This isn't a sacrament. No one there probably even thinks it is. You're fine. So generally speaking, now there are some iterations of going to a Protestant on Protestant wedding that would not be open to you. Uh, some of their denominations where the act of uh, aping or similitude, like I would say Anglicanism, gets to be more like you're partaking in their sacraments, That's that prudence kicks in. Anglicans, Presbyterians, they sometimes talk as if they have these sacraments. Most of the 39,000 types of Protestant admit we really only have one sacrament, and it's the valid one, baptism. Trinitarian baptism is not an ape of the sacrament, even if it's done just by some, you know, pro Protestant pastor Jim in a van down by the river. If he uses the Trinitarian formula, guess what? Even though he's a layman, they think he's some holy man. He's just a layman, but any layman can baptize. That's why their baptisms are good. So I would say, yes, generally, 
Protestant on Protestant weddings are not what we're talking about here, where I admonish you strongly not to go. We're talking about the sin of apostasy, which is a public sin, which gives scandal. Definitely you can't go because of scandal. A Catholic marrying outside the church. A fallen away Catholic. Well, he was baptized Catholic, but he doesn't really consider himself Catholic anyway. That's, that's what we call an apostate. People will say, but he hasn't practiced for like 20 years. I'm like, that's apostasy. And this is an aping of a Catholic sacrament. This is a formal backturning, I would say, on the Catholic sacrament, which he's supposed to be receiving. So for scandal, eh, definite X, no. That's one reason you can be sure of. If it's a liberal ex-Catholic that's going to the wedding, to the uh, that's having an apostate wedding, and and you're we're talking about the person in question, the person who might be cooperating. It becomes formal cooperation if you go and you cheer for the wedding because it's an apostate wedding an apostate semi-sacrament. That's formal cooperation in specifies form. If you go to cheer for the act of apostasy, that's eh, definite X, no way. Okay? So at the high end of causation, formal co- cooperation is always no. This is, you take on the sin. If you go and you cheer for apostasy, you cheer on your friend who's thinking about getting a divorce, you cheer on five cops that are beating to death some guy in the streets, Definitely formal cooperation. Definitely. uh, You have the same sin as them when you formally cooperate. Scandal. You definitely can't go to, uh, you can't go and partake of a public sin. So that, that's kind of, that's kind of the way you can check. Most people say, okay, well, I'm not going. This is why we have to check out material cooperation, whether it's remote or proximate. They say, look, I'm not going to the wedding I'm a good Catholic. In order to cheer for the act of apostasy, I don't like it. I dislike it that it's an act of apostasy. But I want to go because let's be honest, all of the mothers in all of the families, particularly they're not I'm not talking to faithful boomers. We love you guys, but but you know, the 95% of the boomer generation say, hey, family harmony, and in the name of harmony, they're gonna, they're gonna shrilly bark at you for the next three months to go to this uh, adulterous wedding or this apostate wedding. They'll say harmony, harmony, peace, peace. They'll, they'll screech at you. That's, that's why most people that approach me in email, I have a bunch of these, are feeling like they should go and cheer on this deeply sinful act, a Catholic marrying outside the faith. Uh, it's just my mom or my grandma or my aunt. They're going to be really offended. Who cares? Learn to say who cares, guys. Um, they say, we're, we're not formally cooperating. We know what that is. Intent specifies form. We would be materially cooperating. That's true. Because we're not down with the intent or the form of apostasy. Well, then you have to ask. Well, it's scandal anyway, so you don't even have to get to this. But if you want to know whether... Scandal doesn't involve causation. If you want to know whether you're actually causing, helping to cause the sin, cooperating with it in a culpable way materially, you have to distinguish, is this remote material cooperation or proximate material cooperation? And I'll do Netflix and Starbucks after this, which is why you're allowed to 
drink Starbucks bucks or watch Netflix as long as you're not rooting for their evil cause. It is classic uh, remote material cooperation. So the exa- one example a uh, Catholic website gave that I thought was compelling of remote material cooperation. It's material cooperation because you're you're cooperating in the sin itself in, in terms of what Thomas Aquinas would call the materia chircaquam. You're there, you flew on a plane, you're at the material site of the wedding, you're eating the wedding cake, right? All these are modes by which you partake in the actual sin. These are modes by which you partake in the, the celebration of the sin. Um, so you're at least a material cooperator. Is it remote? That means far away. Is your cooperation far away enough to not actually be said in the common tongue to cause it, to cause them to be encouraged to continue sinning? That's remote material cooperation. Proximate material cooperation, it's a distinction of degree. Like Oliver Wendell Holmes said, nature doesn't like distinctions of kind. She only likes distinctions of degree. It's because he... He was called a genius, but he was a he was a anomalous. He didn't know what he was. Nature does have distinction of kinds, but which are much more satisfying than distinctions of degree. But a, a proximate material cooperation would be uh, your your nearness to the celebration of sin is sufficiently near that you actually take on the sin yourself. It's like me around people that are puking. We saw some little kid puking in the subway parking lot the other day. It was disgusting. It was mostly just cola he was spitting up. And we were parked two, two spaces away. And I immediately started backing up and going in because our air conditioning was running. And you're taking in those particles, particles, molecules in the air. And it was disgusting. If you get too near to a puking person, according to germ theory, those particles can get into your mucosa and you can get sick. Because vomit gets vaporized for about eight minutes after they vomit. You don't have to touch it and consume it. <laughs> More about vomit than you ever wanted to hear on this show. Um, so if you get too close to material cooperation, if the material cooperation is too close to celebration, if it's too proximate, then you take the sin on yourself, like like vomit particles. If you're cl- If you're near enough to see it, I saw that kid vomiting, but I was down the block. That's that's what we call uh, remote material cooperation. You are not going to get tainted with the vomit stain of apostasy or adultery. It's a distinction of degree, not kind. Now, the, the Catholic website that I was looking at gave the example of you are a phone, and this is from the 80s, obviously. You're a phone book delivery boy. You deliver phone books, telephone pages, to everyone. You are materially cooperating, therefore, in any sin that anyone to whom you delivered telephone books might use the telephone book and their telephone to procure a sin. Let's say, well, you can't do this in Mississippi anymore because we destroyed Planned Parenthood. Thank you very much. But back before this past summer, there were Planned Parenthood. There's at least one in Jackson. And if I lived in Jackson, they would be in the yellow pages. If I were a telephone delivery boy, uh, book delivery boy, and I gave the yellow pages, not knowingly, to three mothers who were considering an abortion out of the thousand people I delivered it to, 
I would be materially cooperative in the sin of abortion that, that followed in three of those cases. But it would be so remote, my, my, uh, the, the nexus of my connection to the causal sequence is so remote that it becomes a distinction of degree. I'm just not going to vomit. Yeah, I saw the guy vomiting down the street. Yeah, I delivered the telephone book, but I'm not close enough to have taken on the stain, the vomit, if you will, of abortion. Proximate material cooperation is when you get too close to a sick person. You get their germs. Proximate material cooperation, remember, any material cooperation means you do actually look down on the sin. It's not formal cooperation. That's an easy open and shut case. Yes, formal cooperation is as bad as doing it yourself. Don't ever murder for five black cops killing some guy in the street. I'm not saying you would anyway, but if you, because if you root for them doing it, nearby and they can hear you in some causal sense rooting them on according to catholic theology you are actually a murderer according to lots of european good samaritan laws you're a murderer and that actually follows on the catholic teaching you see not not that you guys would do this anyway if you see something horrible happening run the other way or or try to stop it um but the question is you're you're a person like you're a retrograde you don't like the apostasy, but you're invited to the, all these apostates, heretics, schismatics, perverts, you know, sex perverts, fornicators, adulterers. They're always trying to do what? This is the mark of our day. Benedict says it's the age of absconding fathers. I say it's the age of the sex perverts trying to get you, circle you in and join you in their sin. Hey, tell me I'm a woman. No, you're a man. Hey, watch me receive communion in front of the whole church because I'm remarried. I'm divorced and remarried. No, I can't. You can't do that. It's not okay. Hey, come celebrate my quote-unquote wedding to this non-Catholic, even though I'm a baptized Catholic. No. Why would I celebrate that? So, basically, attending the celebration feast... This shouldn't be a surprise now that I've walked you through the rigorous steps. Attending the celebration feast of uh, an apostate semi-pseudo-sacrament, the act by which this young person maybe formally becomes an apostate. First sacrament they may be missing. Let's say they're baptized and confirmed. And this is going to be their formal departure from the church, even if they haven't really attended Mass for five years. Who cares? This is their formal departure from the church. I'm not rooting for it. So it's material cooperation. But is it culpable, proximate cooperation, or inculpable, licit, remote material cooperation? Well, it's not like delivering phone books, baby. It's not. You're going to a celebration feast. You're going to have to do this at least three or four times in the reception. How many times is there applause at a wedding reception, Steph? Ten? A hundred billion? Every time some stupid idiot gives a talk. Also, like Jerry Reinsdorf says in the Jordan documentary, if someone disinvites me from their wedding, I'm going to thank them, right? I'm going to be angry if you you invite me to your wedding because weddings are a pain in the neck. 
They should be private affairs, fastly done. They should be religious affairs by the serious-minded religion. Like Jerry Reinsdorf, Bowles owner, says, you disinvite me from your wedding, I'm going to send you a thank you note because I don't need to go to a bunch of weddings. Now, what does this seem like, huh? Is uh, is go- going to a wedding celebration more like delivering phone books or is it more like rooting for someone killing a guy in the street? It's much more like rooting for killing a guy in the street. What you're doing when you go to a wedding celebration of an apostate, even though you're secretly, you're clapping, you're doing this, you're fist pumping, you're eating the cake, but you're thinking in your heart, and, and this is valid, it's not a form, this does prevent you from being a formal cooperator. You're saying, even though I'm fist pumping, eating cake, partying, literally dancing, celebrating, clapping for it, I'm stealing my heart. I don't mean this. No. Well, okay. It still gets bumped up to adjacent to formal cooperation and you still take on the sin of the apostate. Right? And it's it's clear why. What is that more like? It's more like delivering phone books to a thousand people you don't know? Or is it more like going and, and rooting? Well, you're rooting. You're just secretly stealing yourself. So you're saying, I don't mean this fist bump. I don't mean this delicious cake. I don't mean to clap. But you're giving the public occasion. And the scandal is the fourth avenue that proves you can't go to it anyway. Now, people will say this all the time. People will pro- people are probably saying it on our YouTube chat right over here. People will say it to me on Twitter chat, and they don't they don't understand how formal and material cooperation work. So they sound very silly. They'll say, Tim, how do you ever watch Netflix? How do you ever drink Starbucks? I'm like, do you, first off, do you understand? You are saying, don't use the products of this big evil company because they're big and evil. I don't like that they're big and evil either. But you're communicating this bit ink to me by Google, by Twitter, by Microsoft, by one of the big evil companies that are as big or as evil, maybe more than Netflix and Starbucks. So you're doing it too. <laughs> to even yell at me online, you're doing it. Okay, so it's it becomes um, uh, reductio. becomes a reductio the minute people do this. You use a big evil company to send me a message that I shouldn't use big evil companies. Well, here's why it's actually okay. And I know Catholics don't typically talk this way, but your own, it, it is a mortal sin to, to drink Starbucks or use Netflix or use, let's say, YouTube. You're all, we're all YouTube users, right? I'm a producer. You guys are consumers at least. If you root for the evil that these evil companies do, Netflix, Starbucks, YouTube, Google, as you use them, then you are a formal cooperator and you're guilty of it. But probably none of us are. You are a material cooperator because we're using their material trick of Guam. And we have to figure out if it's remote or proximate. Are we actually proximate enough to the usage of the funds for whatever they support that's evil, human trafficking or, or whatever. I'm guessing. I don't, I'm, that's a joke. I don't know that they use their, their profits for human trafficking, but many think they do. 
They use it for abortion support, contraception support, stuff like that. I'm kind of just guessing. Um, and lots of people think the human trafficking, though it's not true necessarily. Anyway, no, you are very, very, very clearly remote from the kind of material cooperation that would actually render you guilty of whatever Netflix, Starbucks, Google uses their their profits for, okay? This is much more like delivering telephone books, right? You're part of a strictly economic material arrangement of the delivery of goods and or services. And you're not at all thinking about nor knowing nor in the same room with, uh, you know, an abortion being done. Whereas I've had a nurse ask me, hey, I had to, I had to do an abortion in like nursing school. And I was raging against it the whole time, though I, I, I did like I handed the doctor like a pair of gloves. Or, I can't remember what it was. I said, well, that's a material co- of operation, but that's definitely proximate. You are right there. You're literally proximate to it. That is not like delivering phone books. Okay, you using YouTube right now is not the same thing, is not like handing the doctor that Google might or might not supply funds for, the abortion doctor, that you're way remote. It's not like you're handing him a pair of his doctor's abortion gloves. It's very clear. You're very remote from it. You go to your computer and you type in YouTube.com and you watch Rules for Retrogrades. I go to YouTube and I whatever I do to set up the video. Steph says I should know. <laughs> right, Steph? <laughs> uh, but Steph knows. And uh, she just jokes me. And it's clearly remote, not proximate. So I hope this helps. But everyone writes me with this question. Can I go to an apostate's wedding? I think you covered most of the questions people had. Um, yeah, but I think, I think so. would you... Um, I think most people they know this intellectually that they probably shouldn't be attending these, these sorts of weddings. Uh, how do they approach that? Or how do they tell the family member, particularly that they won't be coming? It's super easy. You say, no, I can't go because my, our faith doesn't allow it. Uh, uh, you know, I wish the facts were otherwise. And that's, that's vague enough to be like, I really wish you're marrying someone who's in the faith and getting married in a church. But the facts, it's, it's fine to tell people. Look, I lost a whole bunch of friend, my friends, in old childhood friends in Dallas because of, um, it was right between the 2014-2015 Synods on the Family where Francis was about was was working up a Morse Laetitia and he was making it where communion for the divorced and civilly remarried was a thing. And I was raging against it, watching, uh, you know, EWTN, Raymond Arroyo, Father Jerry Murray, Robert Royal, the Papal Posse, every week, every Thursday night with updates from Rome about this cabal that was pushing for adulterous second unions, which eventuated in a Morris Letizia. And I was yelling at my screen. Then all of a sudden, one of my friends wants to uh, marry a woman who is divorced, an adulterous second union. And, um, you know, I was supposed to be, I was supposed to be in the wedding. I don't, best man, one of the, 
MVP groom guys, whatever they're called, grooms, maids. <laughs> I was supposed to be in the wedding to the original girl, and, and that was cool. But then shortly after that, they broke that off, and it was, well, I still want to marry, but I want to marry this girl for whom I would be the adulterous second union. Would you be in that wedding? In a very similar time frame, there's like no downtime. Suspicious time frames that were overlapping, by the way. And I said, well, no, I can't. I'm suspicious of the time sequence here, obviously. But that's a mistake that you could repent in the past. Moreover, what, what I can't get around is the fact that you are the other woman. X, I said this to the man. You are the other woman. You are, you, this will be an adulterous second union. I've been living and breathing EWTN every Thursday night with my buddies screaming that this can't be done. I can't become a hypocrite. And that friend, dear childhood friend, and all of our group of friends turned their back on me. And I said, look, man, this is my religion. That is your, your religion, too. You're a baptized Catholic, too. This is our religion. I, you're mad at me for following our faith, for following Jesus? So you got to, you got to, I mean, I've gotten good at this now. And that's before, you know, I talked into a microphone about this kind of stuff. All you do, you nip it in the bud and you say, look, I can't go because our faith doesn't allow it. I wish that the facts were different. I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you to, you know, for all this mess to get worked out. And of course, before that, you could say, hey, would you get it at the very least? Because this one says there's only five precepts. This one says there's six. There's some debate even on the faithful websites as to what the sixth said. Some of them say the sixth just says get married in a church. Some of them say you have to marry a Catholic in the church. You can say, look, maybe the compromises are sometimes okay. I don't bargain when it comes to principle, but you can be like, look, get a dispensation for the non-Catholic would-be spouse and from your bishop and get married in the church so you're following at least the lenient version of the vanished sixth precept of the church, and I'll go. Make it, I mean, unfortunately, it's not even that hard to do, but you make it inconvenient and they won't do it. Then you say, look, well, I'm sorry. We're both baptized Roman Catholics. I follow the rules. You don't. You know, I wish the facts were different. Bon voyage. It's not that hard, people. See, I know we live in a very wimpy society and people are, well, people are wimpy, right? Uh, but once you stop being wimpy, once you just start, you don't have to go around like Andrew Dice Clay and t be telling everyone F you. But once you just learn to speak in short, pithy propositions, even syllogisms, our faith requires that you marry in the church, premise one. You are not marrying in the church, premise two. Therefore, our faith requires that I do not attend. It's not a tight syllogism because I, I have to, I need three premises there. But speak like it's a syllogism. I, I wish you all the best, and I hope you come to the right decision as disclosed by our faith. If you'd like to contact me for materials, what our faith actually teaches, this, not this, <laughs> then I'll send it to you. Tip your waitress on the way out or whatever, you know? I think a lot of people, let's talk about the main issue here. What's really happening, I think, in these situations is that there's usually a female family member who starts, who talk, who starts talking about family unity. 
<laughs> Can you address that, please? Yeah, what's really at, at work. I mean, so that's the, the de dicto uh, architectonic of the situation. That's the de dicto phantasmagoria, the moving parts. But the de facto, what's really going on is feminism. Raging bitter women so-called matriarchs they're not real matriarchs but raging bitter women run families either the grandma or the mom or the whatever the great aunt and they women inclined toward by nature inclined toward um um oh they, they incline not toward justice giving to each his due whether or not it's popular uh as much as men justice is called by thomas aquinas the man's virtue uh, women are inclined towards, particularly if they're not well habituated to love and learn the ways of justice from their husbands, they're inclined toward phoniness and keeping the peace, even if this means lying or sinning against justice. They're like, we'll do the wrong thing because it'll be popular. That's what you're going to get if a woman runs your house. And by your household, I don't mean just your household in miniature, I mean your household in major. Meaning your house, your brother's house, your third brother's house, and then your your parents' house, them maybe boomer or depending on your age, they might be greatest gen. It's all the same. It's gonna be some sort of matriarch at, at any of these three generations. And matriarchs are the ones pressuring everyone into not having the fight. It's really diabolical. Always the matriarch. Yeah. She just Tell them um, the best thing to tell a bossy woman who runs, thinks she runs the household is you're not a matriarch. You're not in charge of anything. You have to submit to your husband. I know your husband's like this quiet guy. Quiet guys have ruined the world. Quiet guys that don't speak up and you're shrill. But you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of anyone. Mind your own business. And I'm not even going to justify to you, mom or grandma, why I'm not going to cousin Eddie's wedding. You, you're not owed that. I, you might say, well, I will justify it to Cousin Eddie. You can do your own research on the faith. It's not hard. Direct him to this show. Do that. If you have a shrill, harpy mother-in-law, mother, grandma, aunt, wife, sister-in-law, whatever, just direct him to this show. You're not the boss of anyone. You are. Your duty is to submit to your husband. And your husband ought to be the one who, because men are, are wired toward justice. It's the ruler's virtue. And they're going to be like, no, I, I, I'm not going to drag me, Steph, and our seven kids to an adulterous second union. Forget that. <laughs> I'm not going they... to drag me, Steph, and our seven kids to an apostate union that apes one of the sacraments. No, forget that. Sorry, I'm not doing it to be mean. I'm doing it because I have, one, a backbone. And two, adherence to principle. That's all. And if the woman has a quiet husband in these situations, then she should just follow suit and be completely silent on the issue as well. Yeah. Still not as good as the woman having a husband who's an active leader and therefore not a quiet guy, but just just um, if your husband's quiet, just also be quiet. Just al always be quiet. <laughs> 
Stop okay. being quiet. We have another question from Jacob. Um, are second marriages between two non-Catholics, which the first was not sacramental, considered to be adultery? Yes. If if both of the parties were Christian, were baptized Christians, this is the rule for Catholics. If both of the parties were baptized Christians, even, even Protestants count, believe it or not. If they're baptized, even if they hadn't practiced ever, if they're baptized and they both got married, most of the time, this counts as a natural marriage. Even though it's it's not sacramental, um, if one or no, it's if both of them are baptized Christians, it's assume validity. Uh, that's an official canon. It's a precept of marriage that validity is assumed. It's the rebuttable presumption. They basically are working like the rebuttable presumption now is invalidity. You presume it's in an invalid, invalid union until proven otherwise. Francis even said this and everyone corrected him because like always, he opens his big fat face and he's wrong, right? Uh, he was wrong on that. The rebuttable presumption, this is a term we also use in the secular law, the rebuttable presumption is that a union between two baptized Christians is valid, not invalid. By the way, the Roman Rota, the, the highest court in Rome, overturns 90, 90% of American Episcopal granted annulments because 90% of them are total bullshit. They, they're saying, oh, they'll come up with any way that just some divorce can be downgraded to an annulment. Nope. Nine out of 10 times, even the ones that the canonical tribunals in the diocese have said, oh, this is an annulment. They're just made up. Can we also talk about the fact that, and we know this from even our own family um, experience when we had to decline a wedding, when a, a Catholic member of the family married outside the faith, outside of the church, the godparent issue, we ha we're seeing this every uh, uh, in a lot of places where a godparent to the fallen away Catholic is attending these marriages instead of doing what their job is to set that person right. aside, their godchild aside and say, Look, our, our, yeah, our faith is a shambles. OK, so godparents, you know, the clergy's a wreck, the lay is a wreck, the Catholic commentariat's a wreck. Look at them. They all just quibble with each other. They're very unimpressive lot. Catholics are very unimpressive. That's because we have a crisis. I was talking about this with my buddy Joe Boca yesterday. It's just an un unimpressive lot. We're just messed up. Godparenting is a mess. Totally, totally hands-off laissez-faire godparenting. When in my family, I, I'm not going to tell you even the members of my family this was. It's not, it's, not, it's not my brother Dave, who you know. He's not one of these characters. But I said X was the godparent of Y. And Y was marrying a Jew. And I said to X, look, you are the godparent of Y. You have to advise them how grave this is to, to marry a Jew outside the faith. Like, can you please do something here? You at least have to advise the Episcopal uh, dispensation thing at the very least. And I mean very least. We're not talking about marrying a Protestant or an Eastern Orthodox. Well, pfft, no big deal, right? You marry an Eastern Orthodox at this point. It's like, whatever. You married a... Why was marrying a Jew, though, right? This is serious. This is a serious 
act of borderline apostasy. Well, I'm not sure because it's that was what I had to do to not be an accomplice to an accomplice. I had to get that off my chest. This is also when I was just coming back into the faith. This is, I think, over a decade ago, a decade-ish ago. I mean, this is, you know, a little after I was back in the faith, but I didn't know as much about canonical things. I always knew Thomistic philosophy before I came back into the faith. But anyway, I said, X, you got to do this. And I'm not sure how much X went and did to notify Y. Look, marrying a Jew when you're a baptized Catholic is serious as a heart attack. And here's, here's what you have to do. Okay? So God parenting is really serious. You know, but but the people running the running these decisions are all know nothing, you know, 70-year-old um women who know nothing about the faith, care nothing about the faith, even if they go to church on Sundays. And they're just like family unity. You're gonna offend Amberly if you don't go to her wedding to you know Heinrich or whatever. It's like, well, look, we're Roman Catholics. You have to marry in the faith or do X, Y, and Z, get a dispensation at the very least. They're not going to care. If you're trying to reason with elderly, quote unquote, matriarchs in the family, they'll just nod their head like they care and they'll they'll continue pressuring you. What you really have to say is MYOB, no one cares what you think. You're not in charge of anything. I'm going to take it up with the potential apostate himself. Yeah, I think in general, in our society, we just need to start telling women, just mind your own business. (laughs) I think everyone just needs to start saying that to women who are just poking their noses in, whether it be a mother-in-law, like a mother after you're an an adult, just mind your own business. Y-O-B. It's so nice because it's it's very G-rated. You're not telling someone GTFO, my business. Right? You're, it's another short. It's like Michael Scott saying TMI. TMI is a great expression. I like to use it for these situations. MYOB is something from kids of the 80s and early 90s would say it to each other. And it's, it's we really need to bring it back. MYOB, mom. MYOB, boomer ladies. MYOB, ladies at the parish council. MYOB, women teachers of grade school. MYOB, teachers female teachers at high school, MYOB chancery ladies, MYOB ladies, ladies, ladies. So just mind your own business and the world's a better place. Also, can we please, I'm a very big advocate. Um, Some, a movement that I actually, Tim and I have talked about starting is just bringing back the public booing. (laughs) Just boo, (laughs) boo. Every time you're displeased on anything. It's it's really good. Very effective. and, And tomatoes. Particularly rotten ones. A well-placed boo is absolutely devastating. We need to bring back shame into this society of ours. That's we're not going to have Christendom till we have shame. Anyway, this show went really long. I don't. I don't really. I hope I helped you with the four levels: formal co-op, material co-op, uh, remote material co-op, proximate, and scandal. This is why you can't. You know, go right. Hey, here's the other thing, man. Offending people's kind of fun. Like. <laughs> You got, you got, it's not YOLO. There's, there's the, the afterlife, but Jesus is giving you green light permission to offend people. It's sort of fun. That's the closing thought for the day. Think about that. God bless you. Offend people. Deus Volt.
Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit.